Why are so many New Yorkers struggling with homelessness and what can we do about it? Let's learn together. Welcome. I'm Samantha Diliberti, founder of the social impact hub, Orange You Going, and this is Progress Through Purpose. Progress Through Purpose helps you discover issues you're passionate about, like the environment, social equality, affordable housing, and more, and makes it easy for you to affect change while connecting with like-minded New Yorkers in person. Learn from experts working on the vital issues impacting the largest city in the U.S. and hear the solutions they propose. Then meet us in person. Join the Og Squad, a community of changemakers who meet to affect change together. Build new friendships, expand your network, and advance your career through civic engagement, all while uplifting our city. Learn more about the movement at orangeyougoing.com. Hey, Og Squad. Welcome. Today, we're joined by Jacqueline Simone policy director at the Coalition for the Homeless, which is the nation's oldest advocacy and direct service organization, helping homeless individuals and families. Since joining the coalition in 2014, Jackie has advocated for long-term solutions to mass homelessness in New York. Some of her successes include securing historic commitments from New York government to provide supportive housing and establishing a right to counsel in housing court for low-income tenants. Jackie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. So I want to start with what may sound like a really simple question, but I expect we'll have a complex answer. And that Mm -hmm. is, why are people homeless in New York? So the main driver of the homelessness crisis in New York and across the country is the lack of affordable housing. Simply put, it's nearly impossible for people with extremely low incomes to afford apartments here, especially. And we all are seeing the impact of, in recent months, the rents in the city have been reaching all-time highs. So even people who have jobs are struggling to pay rent. But for folks who are unemployed or people who are on fixed incomes, including seniors, people with disabilities, And people who are working minimum wage jobs, it's nearly impossible for them to comfortably afford apartments. So we know that a large share of New York City renters are paying more than half of their incomes toward rent. And that means that so many people are just one missed paycheck or unforeseen medical crisis or other challenge away from losing that housing and becoming homeless. So we know that the lack of affordable housing is the main driver of homelessness. And we know that we need to dramatically expand access to permanent affordable housing in order to reverse this crisis. Can you talk a little bit about the state of homelessness in New York City today? You focused a lot on the economic impacts and how people are just one paycheck away. But I think we're also seeing the average New Yorker is also seeing that there's a seems to be a mental health crisis as well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the state of homelessness and who is experiencing homelessness. Yeah. So I definitely agree that there are people who have mental illness who are homeless. There are also people who have mental illness who are not homeless. But what we know from decades of research is that in order to get a handle on mental health challenges or substance use or other obstacles that people might be facing, they need that basic foundation of stable housing. So I think that, you know, serious untreated mental illness can be a precipitating factor that that contributes to someone's homelessness, but also the instability of homelessness can exacerbate these underlying challenges. And that's why we call for housing first solutions. So that means that first you give someone the stability of 
an apartment so that they know where they're sleeping at night and they have that basic security of a door that locks and knowing where they're sleeping. And then you can wrap supportive services around them. But without housing, it's very challenging to address these underlying issues. So even for the population that we might see on the streets who might have additional challenges, we know that housing is still the answer for that group, but housing with services. But it's also important to note that the people that we see unsheltered on the streets are actually a relatively small percentage of the overall homeless population in New York City. So New York City has a right to shelter, and that means that the city is legally obligated to provide a bed and a shelter for anyone who's homeless and who wants and needs that bed. So as a result, in the primary shelter system that New York City government oversees, there are more than 50,000 people on any given night, and that includes more than 15,000 children. So that's just shelters overseen by the city's Department of Homeless Services and the Department of Housing Preservation and Development. But there are also shelters for runaway and homeless youth and for survivors of domestic violence and for people who have HIV or AIDS. So in addition to many private or faith-based shelters. So the population of people who are homeless is actually much greater than what we might perceive just from walking around the city and observing some folks who might be unsheltered. Even though we have that right to shelter and tens of thousands of people are in shelters on any given night, there are still a few thousand people who are unsheltered on the streets or in transit facilities. And we don't know exactly how many people fall into that category. The city does a very flawed point in time estimate that we know underestimates the full scope of that population. But we know that it's at least a few thousand people. And often the folks who are on the streets have tried the shelter system and found that it didn't meet their needs. So sometimes that's because the shelters for single adults who are entering just as an individual, they tend to be placed in congregate dorms where they might be in a large room with a dozen strangers, and maybe they might not feel safe there and they might leave the shelter system for the streets. Especially in the context of the pandemic, we heard of many people who didn't feel safe in those dorm style facilities and felt safer actually sleeping on the streets. So that's why we're calling for safer, more low barrier shelters, which mean that they don't have strict rules like curfews, but also permanent housing for people who maybe don't want to be in the shelter system and people who have been languishing in shelters for more than a year on average. Can you talk about what supportive housing means? Supportive housing is permanent, affordable housing with on-site support services. And that's really the gold standard model for people who have additional challenges. So, for example, someone who has serious mental illness or someone who is dealing with substance use challenges, they might need additional supports once they're in housing to maintain that sense of stability. Again, we know that giving someone permanent housing is that foundation of stability that they need in order to address these other challenges. So that's why housing is the key aspect of this model, but they might also need support services. So there are some supportive housing programs where people are placed in apartments throughout the city and they are connected to a nonprofit that provides case management and links them to other services. There are others where the majority of a single building will be supportive housing. And usually there are also some general population affordable apartments in that building as well. 
But we think that that combination of permanent affordable housing and support services is really key for addressing homelessness among the hardest to reach population. Can you talk a little bit about the impacts of homelessness? You've mentioned that housing is this foundation. Without this foundation, what other impacts are we seeing on people and families who are unhoused? Sure. So homelessness is a trauma in itself, right? There's often uh, traumatic experiences that contribute to someone's homelessness. But when people are homeless and they don't have that foundation of stability and that sense of security and dignity that so many of us take for granted, it really does have ramifications for so many other aspects of their lives. So for example, I mentioned that there are more than 15,000 children in shelters on any given night in New York City. But we also know that there are many people who are considered homeless, but who might not be in shelters. So there are families who might be doubled up with other families or friends before they enter shelters or in lieu of entering shelters because they've lost their housing. Maybe their rent got too high or they were evicted or they're fleeing domestic violence and they're doubled up. So if we include people who are in doubled up housing with the people who are in shelters, we know that there are more than 100,000 New York City public school students each year who meet that definition of homelessness. So that's about one in 10 of public school students in the city. That has huge ramifications for that individual student as well as for the classroom as a whole, because often homelessness involves further instability where people might be transferring mid-year in and out of classrooms if their shelter assignment changes or if their housing situation changes. Even getting to school in the morning can be really hard for people. So without getting too in the weeds, there are rights that people have to remain in their school of origin when they become homeless. But if you were previously living in, let's say, the Bronx, and you're placed in a shelter in eastern Brooklyn, that might mean that you have a multiple hour subway commute to school every day. And and for many students, even just waking up early and getting to the classroom while they're dealing with the trauma and instability of homelessness is a challenge in and of itself. So we see very low attendance rates for homeless students. We know that they tend to perform less well on proficiency exams and other academic markers, and their graduation rates are also lower. And again, it's it's not because there's something wrong with these students. It's that they are carrying such a heavy burden of homelessness while also trying to keep up with their stably housed classmates. And that's why just that's just one example of the ancillary impacts of homelessness in our city. I actually just read a report recently that because of COVID, the nation has lost decades of math and uh, Mm. reading skills amongst nine-year-olds because of the amount of school missed. Are we seeing an increase in the amount of homelessness post-COVID as opposed to pre-COVID? Yeah. And you raise a really good point about the added challenge of the pandemic on the struggles that homeless people were already facing. So When schools went remote in the spring of 2020, the vast majority of the family shelters in New York City did not have internet access. So the city was distributing tablets so that people could connect to the virtual classrooms. But some of these shelters didn't even have cell service where people could 
use data to connect to the classroom and people were just missing school. So we worked with the Legal Aid Society on litigation so that the city has now installed Wi-Fi in shelters for families with minor children who are of school age. But that took a lawsuit and many months to install. And people who are in shelters for other populations like single adults or adult families without minor children still don't have access to Wi-Fi in their shelters. So thinking about how much of our life has gone virtual in the past couple of years just really highlights the disparities that homeless people are facing because they haven't been able to do remote work. They haven't been able to apply for jobs or search for apartments remotely because they don't have that basic necessity of internet access in their shelters. So I think that's just one additional challenge that that people have been facing. But in terms of the size of the homeless population and the impact of the pandemic, we've seen some interesting trends. So over the past couple of years, there was actually a slight decrease in the number of families with children in shelters. And that's largely because of pandemic protections, such as the eviction moratoria in New York, which actually expired in this past January. But for almost two years, very few people were losing their housing through evictions. And that meant that people who would have otherwise become homeless were remaining housed. And that really did suppress the population of homeless families. We, however, did see a continued increase in the population of single adults who were homeless because many people who were very unstably housed prior to the pandemic and weren't on a lease and had an overcrowded housing situation were just forced out. Many people lost their incomes as well. So people who were barely scraping by and doing various jobs now could not afford their rent. They might not have known what kind of protections they were entitled to, and they might not have known about the eviction moratorium, and they did become newly homeless. And then also there are factors where long overdue reforms, like the shift toward decarceration, where people have been needlessly kept in prisons and jails for years on low-level offenses, and this, of course, disproportionately impacts Black and Latinx New Yorkers, in an effort to release people from prisons and jails, especially in the context of the pandemic, many people were not actually connected to permanent stable housing after they were released. And that meant that too many of those folks went straight from prisons and jails into the shelter system, which is really unstable and is not the best place for people to be reentering society, right? People need stable housing and they need supports. And if someone is being released from prison, that's great that we should be applauding that. But we need to also, as a society, do a much better job at investing in reentry housing and supports to put people on the path to success. So that was sort of the story of the first few phases of the pandemic, right? Was decreasing family homelessness, but increasing single adult homelessness. But in recent months, we have been seeing increases across the board, and there are a variety of factors. Some of that is that those pandemic-era protections, like the eviction moratoria, have expired. Some of it is that emergency rental assistance programs are running out of money. Those are programs that have been set up to help people pay off their rent arrears if they fell behind during the pandemic. 
And we're also, in addition to these economic factors, seeing an influx of newly arrived folks in New York City, many of whom are recent arrivals from the southern border who are entering the shelter system because we don't have stable housing to connect them to. So at the same time that more people are coming into the system, we're also seeing challenges for people to move out of homelessness because rents are going up. There are administrative delays and staffing shortages that are affecting the ability of people to process the paperwork if they have a housing subsidy to move into apartments. And we just don't have the housing supply that we need in order to help people move quickly from homelessness to housing. So fewer people are moving out of the shelter system and more people are moving in. And as a result, we are seeing an increase in homelessness, as well as an increase in unsheltered homelessness that I think most New Yorkers walking around the city have witnessed for many of the same factors. This episode is brought to you by City and State Media, New York's premier outlet for New York politics and policy. Subscribe to the must-read daily newsletter, First Read, at cityandstateny.com. First Read is the quickest way to stay up to date on NY's biggest political and policy news. Always be in the know. Visit cityandstateny.com to learn more. So you've painted a pretty dismal picture. Where does the Coalition for the Homeless come in? What is your mission and your vision for correcting these, these issues? Coalition for the Homeless has been around since 1981, so we just celebrated our 40th year. And our strength lies in the fact that we provide both direct services and policy advocacy. So we have 11 direct service programs that meet people's immediate needs. We're doing things like job training for homeless and low-income women, uh, programs for homeless children to make sure that they can get that academic support and keep up in school. There are a nightly mobile soup kitchen that serves more than a thousand meals every single night of the year, never missing a night of operation since 1985, serving people who are on the streets in Manhattan and the Bronx every single night. We have a crisis program that has shifted to a hotline during the pandemic where folks can call if they need help with accessing shelter or benefits or housing and several other programs as well, eviction prevention to help people who need help paying off their rent arrears, for example. But then the strength of the coalition is that we take the lessons learned from serving about 3,500 homeless and extremely low-income New Yorkers every day, and we use those lessons to inform our advocacy work. So my job as policy director is to identify systemic barriers that homeless New Yorkers are facing and to try to address the root causes of why so many people need to turn to us every day for services. So how can we implore the city, the state, and the federal government to invest in housing solutions at a scale to meet the need so that we can actually put the coalition out of business, right? I often joke that that's sort of my job here is to, is to try to look at the big picture, and to reduce the need for our services in the first place. And that means calling for investments in homelessness prevention, high quality shelters with private spaces. That means single occupancy rooms for single adults, as opposed to the large dorms with robust services, and then more investments in permanent affordable housing. So we want the federal government to step up with universal housing subsidies because right now only one in four people who's eligible for a federal housing subsidy actually gets it. So we really need the federal government to step up here. But we also need improvements in uh, city and state subsidies. We want broader eligibility criteria. 
and to break down some of the administrative hurdles that people have to jump through. We need more investment in supportive housing. We have had historic agreements in New York City and New York State to create more supportive housing. But we need to be more ambitious and we need to accelerate the pipeline for bringing those units online because right now people are languishing in shelters and on the streets when we know that they would benefit from that permanent housing with support services. And crucially, we're also calling for New York City to align its housing plan with the reality of record homelessness. So currently, the city does subsidize a significant amount of so-called affordable housing and that means that, you know, there are city tax dollars at play, there are rezonings, there are a variety of benefits that developers get for creating housing that is considered affordable. And yet much of the housing that's been created over the past several years has not actually been affordable to the people who need it the most. It might be considered affordable, but it's only actually affordable to people making six figures. So we really need the city to drill down on the levels of affordability and to make sure that the housing that's being built in the city is actually aligned with who has the greatest needs for housing. And that means homeless and extremely low income New Yorkers. So we've been calling for the city to create at least 6,000 new apartments per year for homeless households and an additional 6,000 new apartments per year for households with extremely low incomes. And that means that they have incomes of under 30% of the area median income. And we think that that, while an ambitious goal, is really necessary to reverse the course of ever-increasing homelessness and to help people avoid homelessness and move out of shelters and off the streets much more quickly. You've outlined a lot of different types of housing. So mm -hmm. there's the shelter system that has some services, but is a dorm style system. Is that correct? For single adults, it tends to be a dorm. For families, it tends to be more of a self-contained unit. But the key thing about shelters, while they are necessary, and it's great that New York City has that right to shelter and ensures that people have a safe place to sleep tonight, shelters are supposed to be temporary. So while we should ensure that we have enough capacity to give people a place to sleep tonight, the fact that families and individuals are spending more than a year on average in shelters before moving into permanent housing is really a problem. And that's why we are calling for more investments in permanent affordable housing to reduce the need for temporary shelters. And so how does this affordable housing model work? Mm -hmm. It seems like rents are going up because of supply and demand. How are certain amounts of apartments set aside to be quote unquote affordable and what is considered affordable? Yeah. So the standard of affordability typically is that you shouldn't pay more than 30% of your income toward rent. Because if you're paying more than that, then you might be in a tricky situation if you have an unexpected expense. And you also want to make sure that you have enough money left over for other necessities like food and travel expenses and transportation and clothing, as well as some money for recreational activities. So if, if we're taking the stance that you should not spend more than 30% of your income toward rent, there are a few different ways of achieving that. Some would be uh, housing subsidies in the private market. So the city and to some extent the state, as well as the federal government, have various voucher programs where you find an apartment in the private market and you pay 30% of your income toward rent 
and the government, whatever level of government issued that voucher, picks up the rest up to a certain amount. And that is really a, an effective way of, of helping people afford rents in the private market, recognizing that for many people, the gap between their incomes and rents is too great for them to carry on their own. So housing vouchers help people afford rents in the private market. And in New York City, it is illegal for landlords to discriminate against people and to say that they won't rent to them because they would pay rent with a housing subsidy. So we do have those protections, but we need more enforcement of them. There are other models of affordable housing as well, such as public housing. So public housing is uh, what we would consider NYCHA buildings in New York. And there you have a different kind of subsidized housing where, again, you pay 30% of your income toward rent and the rest is subsidized by the government. The city is not building new public housing, though, and there are very technical reasons why that's the case. There are federal restrictions on having a net increase in the number of public housing units. But in that case, you know, your landlord is the government. So there's private market housing where your landlord is a private entity and the government is helping to subsidize your rents. And then there's public housing where the landlord is the government themselves. And then in supportive housing, for example, usually there would be a subsidy, like a rent subsidy, in addition to that connection with the nonprofit service provider. So there are different models. In addition to those models, when the city is subsidizing affordable housing, sometimes a private developer will receive financing so that the rents will be set at levels that are deemed affordable to certain income bands. And that's, again, based on the calculation that people shouldn't be spending more than 30% of their income toward rent. So once a housing development is constructed, there will often be a lottery for those units that are income targeted. And there might be different income bands that the building is going to be accommodating. So sometimes there's affordable housing, but in order to qualify for that affordable housing, you need to be earning $100,000 a year. And that's why we're urging the city to have deeper levels of subsidy at the front end so that the housing that they are subsidizing is actually affordable to people earning 30% of the area median income or less, as well as people who are homeless. This gets into a dollars and cents conversation. Do we have a sense of what it costs to have somebody in shelter versus to have the government subsidize their housing for an apartment? We know that although the right to shelter is so crucial, it's not enough. And we need to also create a right to housing in New York City. And I think that we should be investing in permanent housing as well as homelessness prevention because it is morally the right thing to do. And it is an abomination that we have tens of thousands of our neighbors without a home of their own in a city as wealthy as New York. But the reality is that it's also the fiscally right thing to do because we are spending more than $2 billion per year on the temporary shelter system and not nearly enough money on truly affordable housing. So it is very expensive to have someone in a shelter for more than a year on average, and it would actually be cheaper to help subsidize someone's rents in the private market. And that's why 
you know, again, I think we should be doing this because it's the right thing to do from a moral perspective, but it's also the right thing to do from a fiscal perspective. What is your call to action for our listeners today? So I think that it's so important for everyone to be engaged with the issues of housing and homelessness, especially at the city and state level of government. I think that many people are not connected to municipal government. They might not even know who their council member is, but that's where so many crucial decisions are being made when it comes to the type of housing that is being created in New York City. And I really do think that we need a groundswell of people recognizing that housing is the answer to homelessness and really speaking up with their elected officials and saying that they want more deeply affordable housing. So again, our goal is for 6,000 apartments per year for homeless households and 6,000 apartments per year for extremely low-income households. And those targets will only be achieved if every single neighborhood and every single elected official is stepping up and recognizing that housing is the answer to homelessness. We also do have legislation that can dramatically help people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness that is often being voted on at the city level. So engage with your elected officials, learn more at coalitionforthehomeless.org, and take action and make sure that they know that you want things like anti-discrimination protections and housing for people who are coming out of prisons and jails, right? We, we have something called the Fair Chance for Housing Act that is being discussed right now at the city council level that would be hugely impactful in helping connect people who have prior arrest or conviction records in connecting to that permanent housing that's so important for their stability and for community safety as a whole. But I think engaging with your elected officials is a really key part of moving the needle on homelessness and reacting with compassion rather than out of fear and stigma. So if a shelter is opening in your neighborhood, you don't have to push back on that, right? These are human beings. These are our neighbors. These are people just like anyone else who need a safe place to stay. And too often we see community members pushing back and saying horrible things about thinking that people are dangerous or reacting out of stigma and stereotypes instead of recognizing the systemic factors that have led to homelessness and the need for systemic solutions to address it. So on our website, we have profiles of compassionate communities who have embraced homeless people either in shelters or on the streets in their neighborhoods. And I encourage everyone to read those examples so that they can be inspired to treat people with kindness rather than out of fear. And then if people want an immediate thing that they can do to provide assistance to people who are homeless, we currently have our annual back to school drive. It's called Project Back to School. And again, because there are more than 15,000 children in shelters on any given night and school is starting up and many of them need essential items like backpacks and school supplies that their parents just cannot afford. So every year we provide filled backpacks to homeless students so that they can go to school prepared and ready to learn. And this year we have a goal of 4,000 backpacks. And it costs about $20 per backpack, including the bag and all of the supplies that students might need. Right now, we're still raising money, though, to fill those backpacks, and we're about $20,000 short of our target. So if people go to our website, coalitionforthehomeless.org, 
They can learn more about Project Back to School. And if they're able to make a financial contribution that can help us fill backpacks and get them in the hands of homeless students as school is starting, that would be great. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today and for the amazing work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Be sure to check out our next episode where we learn about the impact of religious prejudice. Get the most of Orange U Going, New York's social impact hub. When you join the Og Squad for free, you receive event notifications curated to your interests. Never miss a change-making event. Orange U Going to be there? Are you hosting a social impact event? Post it for free on orangeugoing.com to reach the most engaged New Yorkers. When you post with us, we promote it to our email list of nearly 10,000 subscribers across social media and on orangeugoing.com. Let's engage New Yorkers together. Uh-huh.